The rumors were whirling around campus. There was something about the Coast Guard, a, a broken engine, the storm surge. Where were Nathan Stein and Alistair Hayden? Had they made it to their scientific destination? And if they had, had they made it off their scientific destination before a deadly hurricane hit? Now, on Strange New Worlds, for the first time, Nathan and Alistair tell the true tale of what happened to them during their away mission to the Caribbean. I am excited to welcome back Nathan Stein to the show. Last time we heard from Nathan was episode 12, which was a while ago. Great episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely one of the top 12 of the first 12. <laughs> um, yeah, we talked about drones because Nathan likes to go fly drones everywhere, including an uninhabited island in the Caribbean called... Little Ambergris, is that yep. right? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Nathan, why don't you go ahead and just remind us who you are and what kind of science you like to do. Yeah, so I'm a, now a third year grad student here in planetary science at Caltech, and one of my advisors is John Gratzinger, and among other planetary science things, I also work on some terrestrial stuff, which is using drones to map on this island, Little Ambergris, and for those who didn't listen to the previous podcast where we discussed this, it's basically just a small uninhabited island in the Turks and Caicos, which is southeast of the Bahamas, close to the Caribbean, and the goal of the mapping here is to investigate these populations of microbial gnats on this island. And so we've, we've been going there for the last couple of years to map out the island. Some biologists have gone to do work more um, specifically on the gnats themselves. In episode 12, you had just come back from Little Abergus. And a couple episodes later in the introduction, I mentioned that you were going back because a hurricane had just hit and you wanted to study the effects of the hurricane on these microbial mats. And a second hurricane was also on its way. So you were racing this other hurricane to the island to try to figure out what the first hurricane had done to the island. And I, I, I sort of teased this. I was like, Nathan's going to have a great story when he comes back. And now you're back. Uh, and so I thought I'd bring you on again and talk about that experience of going back to a hurricane-ravaged island. But I, first I want to introduce another guest to the Hello. podcast. This is Alistair Hayden, one of our esteemed friends and colleagues here at Caltech. Alistair, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, so I'm Alistair Hayden. I'm a fourth year PhD student also here at Caltech uh, studying geology. And most of my work is about different types of erosion on different planets. And so right now I'm working on water erosion on Mars mostly. Uh, but I was excited to have the chance to go on this project to the Turks and Caicos to check out what hurricane erosion looks like. So, Alistair, you weren't on the first expedition to this island, right? But you, you went on the second. So, Nathan, did you feel like you needed to bring, like, a red shirt along <laughs> for your away mission, your dangerous away mission, just in case? You know? <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm glad we both... Uh ended up coming back. Now, Alistair was great to have along because um, 
Well, I guess to, to, to back up a little bit, we we always were hoping that a storm would hit the island, not necessarily you know, a Category 5 as it ended up being, but something that would both bring a large influx of sediment to the microbial mats, which is one thing that we were interested in looking at, and also something that would do a whole lot of, of work in terms of erosion on the island. And so basically the goal here was just to, to remap the island. And that's what where Alistair comes in, because Alistair works in geomorphology and has a lot of experience, uh, also with drones and mapping. And it was really kind of a, a get in and get out operation. But the, the reason you bring a second person along is not so that you like can keep your main characters. Uh, <laughs> it's so that you can, it's actually a safety consideration. Mm-hmm. So you always, you know, on a remote island like this, you need to have someone who, who's got your back. Not that there's anything that's specifically super dangerous, but you know this is just such a remote place that you need uh, you need some sort of support. You know, it's, it's not like hiking in the mountains here where there's you know gonna be someone probably even with ear within earshot of you. You know, there's no cell phone towers. You can't make a cell phone call. There's no people anywhere within sight, so you can't like wave your arms and be like save me. You need to have a buddy who is checking in on you. So that's why. We always travel in at least pairs. Yeah. Well, you're truly venturing into the unknown. Yeah, you know, in Star Trek, there are plenty of instances of dangerous away missions. Sometimes you beam down to a planet and there's a rock monster or a lizard creature or weird plants that, like, infect you and make you go crazy. And sometimes there's a hurricane. <laughs> so you guys are racing a hurricane. Actually, let's put names to these hurricanes so that people maybe in, in memory they, they've know about these guys. So what was the hurricane that did the damage to the island that then you wanted to study after that? Yeah, so this was an exceptionally active hurricane season. Uh, yeah. Probably the most active, close to as active as 2005. And so we, we first noticed that Hurricane Irma, which is the, the big damage maker uh, that ended up actually directly hitting Little Ambergris. Wasn't it the greatest hurricane of all time or something <laughs> like that? It, it was the most powerful hurricane east of a certain point in the Atlantic in recorded history, and it's, I, I think, also tied for the longest duration of a Cat 5 in the Atlantic Basin. And that's and, the one that hit directly the island that we Yeah, and so, so we noticed that, actually, before it was a hurricane, that uh, the National Hurricane Center basically said, hey, somewhere about a week from now, this energy rolling off of uh, Africa is going to be a big hurricane in the Caribbean, so we started watching it. And uh, eventually it became clear that it was going to affect the Turks and Caicos. Uh, And the eye actually literally ended up hitting the island with sustained winds of something like 170 miles an hour. And so our question going forward is how quickly could we get down there safely? And also an ethical concern of how can we do this without affecting locals who have been devastated by this hurricane adversely. The concerns are that we don't want to take take up people's time who are like need to spend their time rebuilding their homes or something. Yeah. You don't want to be a burden. Yeah, and so about a week went by after this hurricane hit before the main airport in the Turks and Caicos had reopened. It, we, we wanted to get down there quickly before the island had changed too much to kind of get at what the conditions were like right after the hurricane hit. And so we were about to go down, we gotten tickets to go down, and the plan was that Alistair and I would spend a few days on this island, we would take a boat down, maybe from Providenciales. Yeah, no, no transporter technology, so right. you gotta... <laughs> yeah, which ended up being a big problem. 
as we were planning to go back down, we saw another uh, hurricane forming, and this was Maria, which is the hurricane that devastated Puerto Rico and some other islands. And Maria ended up being a, a big problem for us logistically. So walk me through this story. So you're from the point you're about to leave Caltech all the way to when you get back to Caltech. What, what exactly happened? Because I've heard through the grapevine all sorts of different <laughs> versions of your glorious adventures and misadventures in the Caribbean. How did it all go down? Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see. Yeah. Well, I'll start because I got an email on Monday morning saying, all right, you know that trip we're about to take? We might be going tonight. Stay tuned. And then I got an email on Monday at noon saying, all right, we're definitely going in 12 hours from now at midnight. Make sure you're packed. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I had gotten all the gear together, personal gear that I needed for for the trip. Uh, But then we spent the next 10 hours racing around Pasadena to get... We didn't know if there'd be food supplies on the island, so we brought our own food and water down. In addition to all the scientific gear, the drones, the uh, sampling gear, the... I don't even remember what else we took at this point. Yeah, we had time Computer. Cameras. I mean, to, to, to kind of set the timing of this, um, I think it was the Sunday before, so the, the very beginning of this week, I had been looking at the weather, and the plan had ended up being that we were going to go down this week. That was the nominal plan. But I was looking at Maria, and I was saying, boy, this hurricane is going to hit the Turks and Caicos. It's, it's definitely going to hit the Turks and Caicos, and it'll probably be sometime on Thursday. So just doing the math, it takes a day and a half to get down there. I, I didn't think there was any way for us to make it. So I, I went to bed that night thinking, okay, we'll just we'll wait for this hurricane to wash over and we'll try again in a couple of weeks. And then Monday morning, I got a call from my advisor, John Gratzinger, who I think was in Brazil doing something at this time. Uh, <laughs> and he said, you know, Nathan, I, I did the math and I think we can get down there uh, <laughs> if you, you know, take a day on the island and then get back out on Thursday morning and then the hurricane hits Thursday night. And The, the uh, call came in from the Admiral and has right. deployed the fleet here. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, so that's what we did. And, we, and we, uh, we, as Alistair said, ran around for the rest of the day getting plane tickets and, and buying a couple cameras. The idea was that we would set up two time-lapse cameras uh, that we were pretty convinced wouldn't survive. One would be uh, just a GoPro that we set out to actually film the hurricane. Maria. Maria, that's right. And then another that we would set out for a long-duration time-lapse and then pick back up sometime next spring. So we, we did fly out uh, around midnight on that Monday. And as you can imagine, the, the flight to Providenciales wasn't very, uh, very packed. I think there were maybe... <laughs> half a dozen people on the flight. Yeah. This is a, what was it, 737? Yeah. Like, large airplane. Two rows of three seats in each row, and there's six people out of capacity of 150 or something. Yeah. That's crazy. So, Providenciales is the capital of Turks and Caicos? Is that... That's right. So, the, the Turks and Caicos is... The Caicos portion is on the Caicos platform. So, it's this big, kind of shallow, carbonate platform. And Providenciales is the... Uh, the capital and largest city, maybe 20,000, 30,000 people. Okay. Is it actually the capital? Uh, Sorry, Grand Turk is the capital. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Providenciales Uh, is the largest city. So, yeah, yeah, Providenciales is like a, it's the big, we learned it's recently created tourist town. Mm -hmm. Basically, they put in a large international airport, and now this is where all the international tourists fly. So there's a lot of infrastructure there. Okay. Yeah, but as we learned as soon as we got there on uh, early in the afternoon on Tuesday, 
the, the island is pretty devastated by Irma, as you can imagine. Lots of missing roofs. The British military was there going around and soldiers going around in school buses. Uh, and we had ended up finding one of, that we know of, three hotels that were still open on the island. There were three gas Irma. stations and three hotels that were open. Yeah. So we spent the rest of the day basically buying batteries for our <laughs> cameras at Napa Auto Parts that was miraculously open, preparing to go out the next day. And so the plan had been that we would go out on the Wednesday and then fly back out on Thursday before the hurricane hit on that Thursday night. So the island that we're on, to paint a picture, is on kind of the northwest corner of the island chain. And the island we're trying to get to is 50 miles away in the yeah, southeast corner. Yeah. And so pretty much the only way to get there is by boat, except, you know, when the hurricane comes, you don't leave your boats in the water because they'll just get destroyed. There's a huge storm surge, there's all this wind, it'll get blown around. So everyone's got their boats uh, up in dry dock or like battened down somewhere. And then there's another hurricane coming, so no one wants to put their boat back in the water, even if their boat survived the first one, which it turns out a lot of boats did not uh, survive. I think the tourist industry there is going to be pretty pretty hard hit. But we eventually found one company that was ready to go, had at least one boat that had survived. Except of course, Irma had destroyed all the infrastructure on the island, and so no one can take credit card at this point. It's all, it's a, a cash economy, because the network is down basically. So you know, we're walking around with thousands of dollars of cash here to pay for the boat, because the only boats that are available are basically the giant tourist boats. You know, so we, we get there, it's a 50-foot twin-engine motorboat, and at this point, you know, it's Tuesday morning, it's 7 a.m., and everything's gone perfectly according to plan, which is super unusual for field work, especially, you know, it's not what we were expecting going somewhere that had just been hit by the greatest hurricane of all time. Mm-hmm. So, but we get there, and it turns out the first marina is destroyed, and so we have to get in a car and go to the next marina, and even with that, like, we're only... 10 minutes behind schedule or something, which is crazy. And then it turns out that we've got the captain, but we don't have the boat owner or the crewman because they're waiting in line at the store to get food because obviously we're going to be out all day and you need to have food and water. And, you know, they had not had the luxury of going to Target in Pasadena before going. And so they just got stuck waiting. And so we wait around for an hour. Even an hour is not bad for being behind. So we're feeling pretty optimistic. We're feeling pretty good. I guess at this point we've collapsed what was supposed to be a five-day field season into yeah. one day. Yeah, that was that was probably right there in the morning of Wednesday was the high point. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we, we've already condensed all the work that we were trying to do into just one day so we could get out before the next hurricane. And one hour behind schedule, that's fine. That's what we're expecting. And we get out, we're feeling good, planning how we're going to be most efficient, and then the motorboat stops and we're just like all right this is interesting and where exactly does it stop it stops in about halfway in between the two islands so oh, there's goodness. no land anywhere in sight i mean it's a uh, you know just out in the middle of the water and uh you know the captain quickly diagnoses the problem and it turns out a piece of one of the engines has broken and fortunately, we have two engines, and so we're able to turn around and go back. You know, he doesn't want to go to an uninhabited island with just one engine and not have a backup, because one has already failed. So we turn around, go back. You know, the mechanic is waiting on the dock there, and he takes a little while, but we managed to fix the, the broken parts. 
And, you know, after an hour, we're able to turn around and get back out. And so meanwhile, Nathan and I are plotting how we can condense what was a five-day season, now is a one-day field expedition, and now is a half-day expedition, and how we can prioritize our goals and get everything that we wanted to. So we're still feeling pretty good. We can get the accomplish the main objectives, head back out. Same thing happens. Exactly the same spot. We look on the GPS. Wow. Boat just stops. And we're just like, okay. That's weird. Captain, again, quickly diagnoses the problem. Exact same problem, but on the other engine this time. So it's a good thing that we had turned around and fixed the first one. Yeah, um, yeah. And so then we turn around and limp back. And at this point, you know, it's, what is it, noon or one? Yeah. By the time we get back. On the Wednesday. And there's no more parts. Yeah. <laughs> because all the, like, the part that we need is nowhere to be found at the marina. And so, you know, we're just like, all right, well, let's call it a day and go back to the hotel and, you know, get ready to leave the next day before the hurricane hits. But then the owner shows up and she's like, guys, I'm so sorry, this is really embarrassing. We're going to go get you that spare part. And so she puts us in her car and drives, takes the mechanic to drive us around the island. The mechanic calls up his buddies. He's like, yo, who's got this part that we need? So we're driving around and like, he sees his buddy at the gas station. He's like, oh, you know, forget the dude's name, but like, oh, there's Steve. Let's go see if Steve's got the part. So we go, and sure enough, Steve does. So then we go to Steve's house where there's a boat in dry dock, and we take the part off his boat and then race back to the marina. It's like 1.30 at this point? Yeah, it's late. Or 2. Yeah, but and it, it takes about two hours each way to get to the island. So you only have so much sunlight. Yeah. yeah. And, and so... Yeah, we were geared up to go out again, maybe try to do it in a few hours. Then the owner finally broke the news that it, it would be just too late in the afternoon. And no well, one... that the Coast Guard had, had right. told her that, no, you can't go out because you're going too far away, and if anything happens, we won't be able to rescue you. Yeah, and so we kind of dejected, uh, went back to the hotel, and I called up John and left a message with him to say what happened, that we were going to head back to Caltech and maybe we would try to come back out in a few weeks. Use the and, uh, satellite phone to do that because we don't have any way to call out on landlines or anything. Yeah, and then we got, uh, he called the hotel back and said, okay, that's all fine and good. By the way, did you know the airport is closed tomorrow? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this is where the drama actually picks up. said uh, no we didn't know that (laughs) Uh, we should probably go to the airport and so we we packed everything up in In 20 uh, minutes yeah in record time remember this it took us 10 hours of packing in Pasadena to get this all together yeah throw it together in 20 minutes yeah jump in a taxi and go to the airport where you know it's pretty busy at this time lots of people trying to get out and usually the last flight out is around three or four in the afternoon but american had added a flight at 8 p.m because they were going to be the last flight out the next day which was the flight that we were going to be on and so at the same time that this was happening you know all the power uh, and infrastructure at the airport had been knocked out by irma so to, to get on standby, we handed this guy our passports. He disappeared for two hours <laughs> and eventually came back and said we were on standby. So we said, okay. And then, you know, at that time we, we managed to get on Wi-Fi and tell people at Caltech what the situation was. And you know, long story short, we 
didn't both get on the the plane. We only one of us got off of standby, so we uh, both well, decided to stay. <laughs> that it was a kind of intense moment because we're here at the airport and there's like 300 people. We know that the airplane can fit 150, so we're just looking around. We're like, all right, 50% chance. But then it turned out that there's a lot of other flights going to other island, like out to Jamaica or something that's not in the path of Hurricane Maria. And so one by one, you know, these planes will leave. And so suddenly we're, we're looking around. There's one flight left and there's like about, it looks like about 150 people. We both estimated and we both were like, all right, this seems like exactly the capacity of the plane. It's either going to be like three people don't get to go on or everyone's going to make it or the plane's going to be a totally different type and no one's going to get to go. And so we're all just sitting there and they're like, all right, every, all the ticketed passengers can go. And then everyone on standby will call your names off the list. And so it's like something out of a movie where it's just, you know, it's the, the last spaceship off the planet before it gets destroyed or, you know, one of these things. And everyone's just trying to get out uh, before this big bad thing happens. And they're calling names and you have no idea how they've picked the names. And so they called, yeah, they called Nathan up like second or something and and I'm just waiting there like okay this little weird because we've been traveling together the whole time like why didn't they take both of us and he goes up and talks to them and eventually I see him look over at me and give me a thumbs down <laughs> wow you and, really were the red shirt yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out I was like second to last on the list or something yeah. and that was a whole interesting thing because we you're, we're going to feel bad if they took the two like Americans on the plane and left all the locals to like get hit by the hurricane because we thought that Caltech was pulling some strings or something. Mm-hmm. We we're like, uh oh, like capitalism's gonna like, or I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out that's exactly what they did because Nathan has flown this airline a million times because that's how you get to this island, whereas I, I never fly this airlines, and so it probably was just whoever had the most frequent flyer miles got to go first, which is kind of interesting. Anyways, he was kind enough to stay with me, which is great because, you know, I don't know the island. I've been there 24 hours at this point. I don't know any of the people. I don't know. He's got all the cash in his backpack. Like, <laughs> I, would have, I would have been so sunk. Uh, <laughs> so then we go back to the hotel. Yeah, and so our, our only means of communication at this point is either the satellite phone which is a bit spotty. On our way to the airport, we'd use it to call some people in a panic to try to help us out with uh, talking to the airline. So it's it's we can maybe send text messages with it, and we can sometimes reach people by phone. But otherwise, the only way is for people to call our hotel phone. Can't dial out internationally for whatever reason. So we, we get back to the hotel, and, and we spend the next couple hours basically getting phone calls from different people at Caltech. Uh, and I, I think by this point, we, we've tried piecing this together. It, it, it actually elevated at Caltech to the point where the, the president and former provost were aware that we were kind of stranded on this island. And you know, a, a bit of misinformation as to exactly how dire the situation was. There, there was some concern that we were at risk of being inundated by the storm surge which I think at this point was predicted to be something like 9 or 10 feet. Wow. Um, and, you know, storm surge is a bit of a tricky thing because it's really dependent on 
local topography, and it can vary a lot over small distances. But basically, we were asked to use one of the drones that we have to make a, a digital elevation map of the area around our hotel to try to figure out exactly how high up we were. And they wanted to move us to one of these like Miami Beach-style high-rises. <laughs> Fortunately, we had done a drone survey earlier in the day when it was light because it's like midnight at this point. Right. When we're getting these phone calls. Yeah. From the Admiral in Brazil. Yeah, and eventually, I think it might be like the deputy groundskeeper at Caltech, who's a former Navy SEAL who had experience in search and rescue from hurricanes, chimed in and, and looked at where we were on the island and basically said, you know, if I was there, that's, that's where I would want to be. And it makes sense. That's one of the few hotels that actually survived Irma, which was a direct hit, which Maria ended up not being. And so, you know, the, the concern eventually over 24 hours kind of ebbed. Is it for us, at for, least. For us, yeah, <laughs> not necessarily. Meanwhile, at Caltech. <laughs> yeah, yeah, folks were freaking out. But, you know, it's, it's nice that they cared. <laughs> So eventually you make it back, the, the storm passes, you're safe in your high-rise hotel, and you wait it out. You presumably board a plane later on in the week, or how did you, how did you actually get back? <laughs> well, b- before that happened, we actually ended up going back out to Little Ambergris. Oh, you actually went there? Yeah. yeah. You got so, there? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody told me that. Everybody was oh, like, okay. Nathan yeah. and Alistair were yeah. in danger and the Coast Guard. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we, we it took about three days. Basically, the hurricane ended up turning a little bit east. It, it hit the Turks part of the Turks and Caicos fairly hard, like Grand Turk. But the, the wind where we were probably didn't get much above 70 or 80 miles an hour. So it, it took about three days before the water finally settled down and then we knew a guy who knew a guy that knew a guy with a boat and uh we you know paid him some ridiculous amount of money (laughs) and uh eventually got down to little ambergris for a day accomplished Uh, all the science goals and yeah and have a pretty spectacular data set you know it's it's pretty incredible what the hurricane actually did It, it didn't hit Providence Alley's directly, you know, it was the center was 50 miles away from Provo, and the damage there was incredible. But on this island, which was actually in the eye of the hurricane, what, what the hurricane did was pretty amazing. The storm surge probably actually completely inundated the island. Uh, it ripped up giant meter-sized slabs of bedrock and threw them up higher uh, on the rim of the island. It was pretty incredible. We're still working through that data set, and we'll actually have some, I think, great results from it soon. This one's actually very quiet. This is a nice room. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, we've moved conference rooms because the Cassini meeting just kicked us out of the other one. But that's fine. Science is important, I guess. Um, but let's uh, let's continue the story. So, um, well, if we have a few more minutes, then I'll just back up a okay. little bit because sure. while we're sit- so we're stuck in the hotel room for three or four days there. Like literally, there's no, especially during the hurricane. You know, we we stuck our head out a few times. But, you know, there's shingles flying off roofs and branches falling. So we're just like, all right, we'll, we'll post up inside. That's fine. And the only entertainment we had was, like, we still got cable. And so we're just sitting watching the Weather Channel, and we're watching the devastation that Maria is visiting upon first Puerto Rico, and then it heads towards us. And so that's that's what everyone back at Caltech is probably seeing, the damage. And they're like, uh-oh, these guys are really going to get hosed. Yeah, so we're boxed up there, and we meet the other folks who are staying at the hotel. So there's like a 
New York Times photo editor, there's uh, some local government officials. That's the point which we know we're safe because if local government is holding up at this hotel, uh -huh. then like it's probably, and by local government, I mean like Turks and Caicos, it was some official guy from the yeah. official government who had fled from the island that was going to be worst hit to, to our island that we were on. Yeah, so that's, that's what's happening in between the night where we tried to get out and then the morning where we're finally able to get out to uh, Little Ambergris. Yeah, so we, we ended up, the, the plan, which had been condensed from a few days of field work into one day, you know, the, the big objective, number one, is just remap the entire island with the drone. And in this case, we had two drones. We purchased a new one. And the idea was to kind of raster the boat along the north side of this island and get out at different stops and, and kind of just mow the lawn to map out the island. And then at some point, I'd get out of the boat about halfway and walk into the island to get some samples of sediment and microbial mats and to take some pictures in the interior. And then Alistair would continue onward mapping things out. And that's, that's more or less what happened uh, with, with some hiccups along the way. The channels on the north side of the island, to set the stage, the island is kind of this, it's this tidal setting. So the interior is inundated with water, and then there's this bedrock rim around the exterior that's kind of poked through in places by channels that go out into the ocean. And the hurricane Irma had, had basically scoured out these channels to tremendous depths, to the point where normally you'd be able to walk across knee-deep water and now they were definitely swimmers <laughs> and uh, this became an issue because the plan was for me to get out you know halfway through spend an hour or two in the interior and then walk along the north side of the island to meet Alistair and the first channel I couldn't get across so I cut inland took like half an hour I was pretty exhausted and by the time I got to the second channel I just kind of gave up and tried to wade with my back above my head and you know, got washed out in the ocean, so I had to get a new <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> but, uh, we eventually, at the very end, we, we got all the mapping done that we wanted to get done, and then we set out a time-lapse camera looking at you know, the head of this newly incised channel that formed a small waterfall <laughs> of water that I think Maria had introduced to the island that was flowing over mats. So it's basically a, a waterfall of, of water flowing over mats onto more mats. So nominally, right now, that camera should be taking a picture every six hours of these mats. It's powered, we think, by <laughs> a, a battery and a solar panel that we, that we brought down. And then the plan is to go back sometime next spring and actually pick it up uh, and, and see what's been changing. And the, so the other pause we had to take during the field work, so we're flying these drones around, and suddenly we hear this really low noise and I, I've done previously done other field work helicopter supported field work so I immediately recognized it as a helicopter headed our way because uh, you can hear them when they're still like 20 miles out especially in a quiet setting like this where the only sound is like the waves or something you know natural sound like that and suddenly uh, we see this this giant Chinook helicopter, one of the double rotor military transport helicopters, and I guess it's supporting all the relief efforts. And they must have a crazy range because, you know, it came from towards Providencialis and apparently was going out to the aircraft carrier uh, even further east. And, you know, that's like a 60 mile trip or something. But anyways, you know, you don't want to be flying your little drone around while there's a, <laughs> a giant actual helicopter uh, just hauling through there. So we got some cool videos of that. 
But we accomplished everything that we wanted to in the field, collected our samples, got the time-lapse camera set up in record time, made it back to Providenciales that evening, saw the green flash on the way. I've never seen that before. The effect when the, the sun sets of refraction and you just catch the last little piece of the sun that you see is a brilliant green. It wasn't a flash, it just was a green sun. And yeah, which I've heard about that my whole life and I've never seen it before. And so then we get back to the, the hotel finally exhausted after, you know, all this trip. And, you know, I've, I've been a Star Trek fan my whole life. And this actually was the, the first night of the new episode of the new uh, Discovery series. And so I was like, Nathan, we got to watch it. <laughs> you know, they've they've got, got the power back on. They've got the cable back on. So we deserve to, to watch this. And it's the first episode. And if you've seen it, you'll remember that, like, it literally starts out with two scientists on an away mission, getting trapped by a storm, almost trapped by a storm. And so I'm just like, oh my God, this is too, <laughs> too real. Except, you know, they have a, a starship that can make it through crazy storms and pull them out before anything bad happens. But you guys didn't try walking in a, a Star Trek Delta. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just so, see what happens. You know, if, if I had seen the episode first, then yeah, maybe. Yeah. But uh, so then we finally make it back. Um, when we got back to the U.S. and I got a you know flood of text messages that I hadn't received while we were out in the field work, <laughs> just the rumors that came in through text were just ridiculous. <laughs> I think the the most far fetched one that I got was that we had. You know, we were out trying to do field work. The hurricane came, and we tried to escape on our boats, but the boat broke, and so then the Coast Guard had to come and, like, rescue us from the middle of the hurricane. So, you know, with that, you can see why people were so worried about about us back here, because, you know, we had no ability to hear the rumors and then set them straight. Well, now you are setting all the rumors straight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, relative to that case, the situation was pretty mundane and luckily we were able to return to everything that we have here but there are a lot of folks who are still dealing with a, a tough situation there and throughout the Caribbean due to these storms so it's at the same time we got all this data but uh, it was kind of a, a stark reminder of the human cost of these events. I mean it is important to acknowledge that you know like we saw one island that had been kind of hard hit but there's definitely worse off ones. Right like Barbuda and Puerto Rico and, you know, the the disaster goes beyond just the news cycle. And, like, the, the island that, that we saw, the major resorts weren't even going to be up until, like, back running until after Christmas, I think they were saying. Right. Which, obviously, those islands, I think Christmas time is a big economic time for them. And so that's going to be, you know, the damage is, is going to just keep going yeah, and as you say, the, the, the struggle will continue uh, long after the news has died down. It's an ongoing effort that doesn't stop after the rain stops and the sky's clear. To me, that was, I think, the biggest takeaway from this whole adventure was the, like, the human component. You know, it's a, in order to do science, we rely on a network of support. And it's really easy here at Caltech if we want to do work in the desert next door, you know, we just borrow a vehicle from the department and then we drive out there and we find a store to buy food at and, you know, we've bought all our gear and have all this stuff and we can do science. You know, even even without a hurricane in the Turks and Caicos, it's a little harder because we have to fly there and, you know, but we're still buying food from the store and 
relying on a support network there, you know, then to see now what happens when there isn't infrastructure to support science. Science is something that happens when a society exists and can support itself, and human peace was the biggest thing that I learned. And that's sort of reflected in the nature of Star Trek as well. On, on the outside, it's a science fiction show, there's lots of cool technology, people are exploring outer space, but once you dig a little bit deeper into the episodes and the storylines, it is that human heart that pervades all of Star Trek and, and makes it, to me, so successful for the past 51 years now, is that it, it tells stories about who we are and who we want to be and how we can overcome adversity. More so than it tells stories about interesting science, although it uses lots of cool science and technology as, as drivers of those stories. So that's a really interesting parallel there, too, from your adventures in the Turks and Caicos. All right, well, thank you both for joining me and for setting the record straight and telling the true story of what <laughs> happened to Nathan and Alistair in the Caribbean. That was a really fun story, and... Uh, heartful story as well. So thanks for, for having us. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. I hope you enjoyed hearing Nathan and Alistair's story from their away mission to the Caribbean. Yes, science is amazing, and scientists often go to the extremes to acquire the data they need to make the next big study possible. That's part of what being an explorer means. But science is also a human endeavor and relies heavily on the society that makes it possible. When societies around the world are damaged, it is our responsibility as the lucky, unscathed ones to help. I encourage you to render assistance in any way you feel able. Many in the Caribbean suffered this past hurricane season. Hurricane Maria the storm that Nathan and Alistair weathered decimated much of Puerto Rico, including the Planetary Habitability Laboratory at the University of Puerto Rico at Arecibo. There are many ways and places that you can donate to, but if you feel inclined to help the scientists at the Planetary Habitability Laboratory rebuild their research infrastructure, you can go to PHL .upr.edu/support Remember, we are all one scientific, one human family, eking out a fragile existence on the crust of this green blue orb called Earth. Until next time. See you out there.